Hi, I'm your host, Melissa Clark, a professional counselor in the Dallas area with a passion for helping you overcome challenges, process painful emotions, and understand your God-given identity. I am so glad you are here. This podcast is a series format. This means each month you hear about different mental health topics from a Christian perspective. I believe listening to this podcast will leave you feeling excited, educated, and empowered. We're in the middle of a series all about mental health. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I am so excited about this series. We've already heard from a professional about alcohol addiction, another professional about eating disorders, and today we are going to be talking about childhood mental illness. There are so many myths, so many misconceptions, and I am so excited for you to be able to hear from Dr. Rhonda Johnson because my goal in this series is to help you to debunk myths about mental health issues to provide you with quality resources from trusted professionals and help you to have a better understanding about mental health issues. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Rhonda Johnson. Well, I wanna welcome to the show, Dr. Rhonda Johnson. Dr. Johnson has been working with children, adolescents, adults, couples, and families in a private practice setting since 1999. She became a TBRI practitioner in 2011 for her specialty of working with children who have been adopted domestically or internationally, as well as children in state foster care and children who have experienced trauma. Dr. Johnson has a personal story of experiencing infertility and being an adoptive parent, which allows her to bring a multidimensional perspective to working with children and families who have adoption as a part of their stories. She's also a teaching fellow for B.H. Carroll Seminary. Dr. Johnson is the owner of a large private practice, the Center for Counseling and Family Relationships, which was established in 2007. She's also the owner of CC Fam Training, established in 2012, specializing in a live, virtual, and online CEU provider with a focus of supervision, Texas ethics, play therapy, and children who have experienced trauma. Through CC FAM training, Dr. Johnson has also provided private practice coaching and consulting for mental health professionals in leadership and supervisory roles, as well as supervision for LPC, LMFT, and RPT. Welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So thank you for the invitation. You are so welcome. You have such an impressive resume. I know I have done my trainings, many trainings with you and through you. So you provide a great service to the community, and I'm so grateful for your education and insight. Thank you. It's it's a joy to be able to meet others and train them and give them things that I didn't have. <laughs> so exactly, so can learn on the front end. Well, as you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I just want to really talk to, to you today about children and mental health issues. I feel like this is one we know we're becoming a lot more educated about anxiety and depression you know, eating disorders, addiction, I feel like those are conversations that a lot of us are having. But when it comes to children and mental health, I just feel like it's a giant question mark for so many people. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk with you today about children and mental health. I'm curious how you began working with children. Mm -hmm. So the truth for me really is that I had just graduated from school and I got my first job trying to work towards my LPC intern hours in the state of Texas that you have to have. That's always fun. Oh, it, it is fun, that journey, because it's always the hardest clients, you know, that you'll work with. And 
in the midst of that, my employer decided that it would be a great idea for me to see all populations. And so very quickly had scheduled some children with me for play therapy. Um, but the only problem with that is that I had never had a play therapy course. I had never read a play therapy book and I didn't <laughs> really have very much supervision during that time. And so it definitely, I was either going to thrive at it or it was not going to go well. And so we were in a group similar to what I have now. And I really sought out wisdom um, from a lot of people in that group trying to figure out like, how is play therapy different than babysitting, which was the only context I really had for (laughs) (laughs) on a consistent basis. And so in working, you know, with them and learning from them really was able to, you know, get a lot of techniques and an understanding of communication with children and conversations with children, what the goals, you know, of working with children was and with their parents, obviously, you know, um, too. So in the middle of that um, grew a lot. But as I, you know, continued working with children over that first decade, really recognized there were some things that were missing that I just didn't have the foundational pieces, although lots of people referred, you know, to me to see children. um, I knew that I had a gap. And my first step was attending that trust-based relational intervention training um, through TCU, and that's for working with children from hard places. And then the next step, I really, um, uh, my daughter is adopted, and so that, you know, led me to getting more interested in adoption and trauma and things that children have experienced. And so through all of that, along with hiring a really phenomenal play therapist, at a point in time in our practice, all of that kind of set me on that trajectory, but that's how I got started. Yeah. And I love that. I love how it just kind of started in a very simple kind of way and, and feeling almost, uh, under equipped with it and then just kind of growing into this field and being able to partner with other people as you've been able to, um, have so much experience in working with kids what are the mental disorders that you most often see in children and teens? Mm-hmm. We're really conservative in our practice because we are so insurance-based and billing insurance that a majority of the time, like the diagnosis officially that we would be billing and using would be adjustment disorder, which really just means it could be a stressful time in life based on any you know number of things. And we're able to use that, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a shorter term, but at this point we've been able to use it for a longer um, time frame. And the symptoms that we see sometimes are, are a little more, you know, they're further than just adjustment disorder. But if a child is not on medication, you know, or has not been diagnosed by um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone else, then we probably would stick with that adjustment disorder. So the symptoms would match Obviously, attention deficit hyperactivity, you know, disorder um, is seen. Autism is something that we would see in children. There's the same things as adults with the generalized anxiety disorder. Real quick Uh with that, are you seeing a lot of kids, and and, and you've been in practice for, you know, 20 years Mm -hmm. or so. Do you feel like you're seeing more kids today with anxiety and depression disorders or those symptoms than you were, say, you know, 15 or, or more years ago? Those are great questions. I think they're hard to answer because in our world, the children that we're seeing, those are the struggles that they have. So I don't know that I would say I'm seeing it more um, because those were the same things we were seeing kids for before. Now, because we have so many play therapists and have so many children, 
you know, that we're seeing in the practice, it definitely, obviously, we see a lot more because I'm seeing a lot more children come through, you know, and knowing right. what they're coming for. That um, makes sense. So there are, when it comes to, you know, attention deficit and the autism, I do, a lot of those as I was getting into the field were getting heavily diagnosed and sometimes overdiagnosed. And that it is so interesting because even, you know, with my daughter, we made the choice. She was diagnosed with attention deficit um, this past year, and we had made the choice. She's now 14, but that whole time there were some questions in my mind, but we had never officially done any testing. And so we, you know, chose to go that route because she wasn't hyperactive. She's more on the inattentive side. It wasn't a behavior mm-hmm. issue, you know, with school or anywhere that she went. Um, and so it is interesting. It's how much of it does go under the radar, how much of it is just generally generationally being passed on. So it's not necessarily that it's worse, but every generation is going to pass on more and more things, you know, and so yeah, you're right. Along with just for, for better, for better and for worse. <laughs> yes, exactly. For better and worse. So, and the, along with society and just, you know, screens and all types of things. So none of those help you know, attention deficit or autism or, you know, but there's genes in the midst of that. There's, you know, lineage, there's environment, there's, you know, outside the environment and relationships. So there's a lot that plays into, I think, any of the diagnoses. That's why in our world, there is no blood test. You know, it could sometimes fit several diagnoses and it's just whoever is working with them or testing or, um, you know, uh, helping with medication, whatever it might be, they're the ones deciding which of the ones. But does it mean that any of those symptoms could not improve, you know, to where that diagnosis, although we have to use the diagnosis in a medical model, does that mean that it couldn't be overcome in some ways? No, you know, not necessarily. Because kids are so young, I do feel like they're resilient. And we'll probably get to some more of that today. And just how their bodies get wired and their nervous system. And that all impacts the symptoms, you know, that were. It's such a fine line as a parent. I know um, both of my kids were diagnosed with dyslexia last year. Mm -hmm. And we have a yearly ARD meeting um, with the principal and, um, you know, all the people. But they all show up. There's like 10 people there, it feels like, in the room. Mm -hmm. And, um, this year they were really wanting to, uh, evaluate my son for autism. Mm-hmm. And I really battled with that because it's so hard because I know when it comes to diagnosis that it's often to get them services. Mm-hmm. It is. How do you kind of navigate with that with parents? Because we don't want our kids to have a label. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we don't want them to have that stigma, mm-hmm. but we want them to have the services. And, and, and how do you kind of navigate through with parents in terms of helping them to get the right testing mm-hmm. and for them to be able to say like, Hey, it's okay. If your kid has ADHD, like that doesn't mean it's a forever thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of curious what's a typical, mm-hmm. like as you work with parents and being able to navigate through. Right. I think the main goal always has to be you're trying to help them be successful at whatever responsibilities, you know, that they have as a child, you know, at whatever age that they're at. So if that's school, you know, if it's you also want to help them be able to be successful with relationships, you know, with both adults and with peers. So the the main, you know, decision maker in any of that is 
you know, can they be able to progress and develop and be successful at all of those things, you know, that they need to be able to be at that age if you don't pursue the accommodations? And And if the answer to that is no, then I would be for, you know, having even that, you know, diagnosis through school and having those ARD meetings, because what you don't want is if you've never pursued, you know, any of that help, whether it's medication or testing or accommodations, then the child never really knows what it's like to not have attention deficit and all the symptoms of it. They don't know what it's like to, you know, be able to read more clearly with my daughter having dyslexia too. So I think that was my main, you know, thing. It wasn't that we waited because I didn't want to do the medication or any of those, but she was, you know, thriving and doing pretty well. But as we've gotten into later middle school and I knew we were heading into high school, there were definitely some things that were not, it was just much more difficult. And it's COVID has, you know, exacerbated that with everything online, but it's much more difficult to learn, you know, when it's not relational with a person and I'm just reading something, you know, so, so it, (laughs) it's, I think it's a, you know, learning process for everyone. So I'm not one, we're very cautious. I'm not one to jump on medication and diagnoses and testing and all those types of things. But we also have parents that don't take those steps that it really could benefit their child because, you know, you, you have that guilt as a parent too, of what if we had done it sooner? You know, what if, what if we had pursued something and they could have not struggled, you know, their entire school life, but you also, even when you do that, you don't want that to be their identity. So it's not all exactly. about, there's not daily discussions in our house if you have dyslexia. So it's okay that, you know, you're struggling or attention to, So, you know, so it's, it's still having expectations and that's going to be true with any child, no matter the struggles, you know, that was one of my first jobs, you know, was working at, and back then it was called MHMR and it's renamed now Mm -hmm. that I would work with the kiddos and those, some of those parents just had very little expectation from their kids that did have, you know, struggles, you know, throughout, whether it's physical, mental, whatever, And I even recognized, wow, they could have, you know, some expectations so that this child isn't terrorizing the household at all moments. And so it's just what are realistic expectations? They're not too high and they're not too low. And also what can help them succeed? You know, what's within a child's hula hoop for the age that they're at? I love that. And and really what I'm hearing you say, too, is just like this gauge as a parent where what works one day may not work the next day. Yes. And it's that, that curiosity with our kids and being able to dialogue with them and to know what works for them when they're six may not work for them when they're Mm -hmm. eight. And so there's no rigid plan. Mm -hmm. Um, I think every parent jokes, you know, where, where is my manual? Right. Yeah. Where does this come from? (laughs) Yeah. What do I do? So what are some warning signs? Because we don't have that manual, but what's like a general kind of like rule of thumb that when parents are kind of like, you know, maybe it is there ADHD, like, is there autism, you know, is there anxiety? What are some warning signs that parents can be on the lookout that might indicate a mental health mm-hmm. issue? Through the same, I mean, as adults in a lot of ways, if you just think about daily life. So for them, you're going to have the eating and sleeping patterns that may change grades are something to pay attention to. Um, There's the hygiene. Hygiene comes in, sometimes that could be relational issues, but with abuse as well. So if there's physical, Mm. sexual abuse, you want to watch for those just to make sure um, 
that, you know, they have something hasn't happened, you know, further in a protected um, friendship and relationship changes just in general with peers. You've got mood and temperament that can change. Um, so irritability or more anxiety, whatever it might be. And then those fight, flight, or freeze patterns, um, we all have a window of tolerance, of stress that we can handle. And when we get outside of that window, you know, is when we can see more of those symptoms take place. So a lot of those can be like from something that's happened in life. We all have life crises, you know, that happen, or it can just be, you know, more genetic, you know, it can be more relational. So it's always trying to look at, okay, what are things to watch for? And then what may be the cause, you know, be an investigator and a detective, you know, and notice things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard with us as parents. It's, you know, like over a summer, a kid will shoot through three sizes and we're like, where did that go? Indeed. When we're with them all the time, um, sometimes we don't notice the slight changes and it's just paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paying attention. I like that being a detective, not an investigator. Mm -hmm. (laughs) where you're interrogating right. them, but where you are being kind of curious and having conversations. And I, and I know we as parents, especially now working from home and, and distance learning, we feel so overwhelmed. And I just want to encourage you if you're, if you're struggling in parenting, it, it doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, watching your child 24 seven, they wouldn't appreciate that um, either, right. but it does mean I think having like you know, conversations like a, at least a once a week check-in, like, how are you doing? What's going mm-hmm. on? And being able to see those warning signs and kids are really smart. Like they will tell you what's going on if it's a safe mm-hmm. environment. So I and love that. That, it, that is the key, you, you know, oh, do ahead. they feel safe with you? You know, so more than trying mm-hmm. to get something out of them, you know, do they know that you're for mm-hmm. them? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, totally. How can parents help their child or children with mental health issues? Sure. Well, I mean, the the main way that any parent can help, and, and that's true you know, for adults as well, is they're just needing that relationship with the caregiver. So not every child lives with a parent, a biological parent. You know, um, right. And so there are lots of grandparents in the mix. There are lots of adoptions and, you know, foster care and, and uncles. And uncles. And... Yes, there are. Sometimes it does take the village like we talk about. <laughs> Indeed. So whoever, you know, the, the caregivers are in that child's life um, is really being for them and having that relationship. So instead of letting, you know, the weight of influence transfer to school or to coaches, you know, teachers, other people in their lives, even though they may have, you know, more time in a day, you know, with some of those people is still making sure that we, you know, have an influence on them. Um, and that means that we have to set an example, obviously, of what healthy mm. relationships and, you know, spiritual growth and, you know, being challenged in life and overcoming challenges. We have to set that example for them, too. So we've also got to, you know, walk the talk <laughs> that we're doing. So really being invested and, you know, interested, you know, in our kids and listening. I love that. And as you're sharing, I often think in pictures and there's really a spectrum of mental health. And, and the, the reality is, is, is we all are mental health is a part of all of our lives. And for some people, they have disorders and other people, we're just trying to be mentally healthy people. And we have symptoms that kind of pop up from mm-hmm. time to time and the importance of that relationship. And so mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that we're here just to focus on the disorder part, but it really is about the awareness of our own mental health. And as parents, 
that we are focusing on our own spiritual, mental, emotional, physical Mm -hmm. health. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I've seen a genuine, you know, like where faith and a hope in Christ just really is so helpful. And that's where our true source comes from. But I've also seen the flip side of that where religiosity brings shame and and stunts our growth. I'm curious on your faith, on your thoughts on regarding faith and mental Mm -hmm. health. I know that's such a complicated conversation. So no, I mean, our practice specifically, I set it up so that we don't advertise as a Christian counseling practice um, because I really, we wanted to allow it to be a ministry to the entire community and even to those who might not come, you know, to a place that would be a Christian counseling practice, even though everyone we hire within, um, we are all faith-based. So the church, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day before counselors really existed and there were private practices, you know, every few miles, um, the main <laughs> source, you know, of counsel and wisdom and challenge and support Um, And so through the decades, obviously, a lot of that has changed and counseling, you know, was separated from the church and relationships, you know, closer relationships with parishioners or pastors, you know, aren't, we have more mega churches sometimes now, you know, as well. So there's just not as much of that closeness. So because it doesn't focus, you know, and zone in on individual relationships with everyone within it, that's where counseling's, you know, really come more about. So my view on faith and mental health is that same approach that, you know, we found within our church, and I just try to transfer a lot of that to our practice. So if we give, you know, every client the opportunity to assess their values and and be able to ask questions that cause them to explore their belief system then a client can determine, you know, what their next steps need to be. So, um, in a, you know, we can explore their spiritual journey. Um, we can look at what God might be teaching them in that moment. Um, and that allows them to make some of those decisions, you know, on what their next steps need to be and, you know, how their life is making an impact, whether they're more kingdom-minded or even if they're not, you know, kingdom-minded. Right. So it removes some of that you know, shame and guilt that can come along when you are pairing religion with mental health, if it's focused more on rituals. So it's removing some of those rituals and focusing more on relationship with Christ and how to support through that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that was a great way of answering it because it it really is about the relationship and it was never meant to be about the rituals, but it's always been about Mm -hmm. connection. So I love that the theme about connection and vulnerability and, and bringing Christ in with that, but not being so focused on the behaviors. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest crisis that you have been through and how did you grow in your faith during mm-hmm. that time? That's how we, that's how we really learn and grow is through hearing other people's stories. So I appreciate you being willing to share it your is. story. Or some <laughs> well, of it. it's one that before today, I probably wouldn't honestly have shared quite as vulnerably. Um, we actually shared it for our church now that we're doing church online and everyone is through COVID. Um, we did a video um, for our church where we were sharing the story and most you know, members of the church who even know us, you know, they didn't necessarily know the story because of how our church handled it. But I felt like it was a great example to the question you were asking about putting faith and mental health together and about the shame that can come from that. So five years ago, um, things for me really turned upside down. Um, My husband had let me know that he had had a sin, you know, of gambling that had been growing um, over a year and a half. And by the time I found out, Mm. 
And at that point, he was losing his job. We definitely, the resources were extremely low at that point. It was impacting me, you know, my business, our family, um, obviously all those types of things. But in that, you know, that moment of finding out, you know, that my first words, you know, were that we needed to go, you know, to our church. And I didn't mean like the physical mm-hmm. building, you know, of the church, but I meant the people, you know, of our church. Um, so back then our daughter was nine, you know, and I was trying to figure out, you know, did I, was our marriage going to last, you know, and the amount of dishonesty that had happened um, within that. But we went um, that night, you know, it was 11 o'clock at night and we went to some close friends nearby who were from church and, you know, told the story of kind of what we knew to that point. And they, our church has done an incredible job just of training and having training programs available and this couple had been through one of those. And even though they were not licensed counselors, you know, or any of those types of things, <laughs> um, really handled it so well and were super supportive or still dear friends today. So in the weeks that followed that, um, several women, it was around, honestly, five women in the church really committed to meet with me and to be available to me um, just to listen and encourage, you know, me and any of the questions I had in my head, you know, about all these things in life and questioning all the decisions I had made in life, you know, as a counselor, how did I choose someone, you know, how did I not know how to, you know, all these things in the middle of that, what they really challenged me to do was to constantly also look in a mirror along with listening and encouraging, which they did. It was also a matter of like, what were my flaws um, what was God wanting to teach me? What did I need to learn and grow in? And that was a really hard time, you know, of when I, you know, felt like I had been wronged, you know, in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And that we call it within our church, you know, um, knowing that God's not going to rip you off. And it became, it went from being true, you know, of yes, that's true. God won't rip you off to being real, of seeing God really come through. You know, my husband really committed to want to change. And making some changes in his life, we both did. So he had people he was meeting with as well. And so it was a very long road. And it was, you know, one choice at a time of heading in the direction, you know, for our relationship. But through all that, um, you know, our church really didn't judge. There was no gossiping. A lot of people didn't know our story who've even known us, you know, a long time other than the people that needed to, the leadership and others. And it came with wisdom when we asked for it. So, you know, although we went through that, our marriage is much closer, you know, than it ever has been in our 18 years of marriage. And our daughter has seen us, you know, walk through these things and seen us get through hard times. So I think that's, you know, ultimately that's my goal, you know, for our practice is a lot of people don't have friends to go to at 11 o'clock at night, you know, that they're that close to Mm -hmm. and can be that vulnerable with. And so how can we be available to walk through hard times, you know, with others and be able to listen and encourage and when they're willing, you know, to, to hear wisdom or ask for it, but, you know, we're able to give that and to help them look in a mirror, but obviously they have to be willing to do those things just like we had to be willing to. I love how your help didn't necessarily come from a paid professional, that it was your Mm -hmm. community. And I think that's a testament to help can look like so many different things. Sometimes it is going to somebody. I know I've had Mm -hmm. to go to people from time to time, in addition to friends. And there's such a, um, a mix of ways of receiving help. It doesn't have to, there's not a one size fits all, you know, Mm -hmm. form. 
and I love counseling, obviously. I mean, I really believe in um, that medium or that venue, if you will, Mm -hmm. for help. But I love Mm -hmm. how you were able to model that for your daughter and that your family was able to get help and through that, like to be so Mm -hmm. much stronger. And when you think about like that, your story and what that meant for your family, what are the nuggets or Mm -hmm. things that you've learned about like being a mom or your, your husband being a dad and as a, as a clinical professional and ways that you as a parent helped to raise your daughter to be mentally strong or ways that you can help other parents to raise mentally mm-hmm. strong kids. I mean, attachment is obviously a huge one. I mean, it's an attachment with your spouse, you know, as well as with your kids. And that's where some of my biggest um, flaws were, you know, I've been blessed in a lot of ways, mm. you know, to be able to have the practice, you know, as a ministry to others, but, um, and I've had lots of opportunities, you know, with my hands in lots of different pots. And the problem is that that work is never truly done. I never get to walk away, <laughs> you know, feeling like it's finished right. um, because I'm not, you know, just seeing clients, not that just seeing clients, but when I did that, there was an ending to things. And now that, you know, it's broader than that, there's not necessarily an ending and it's hard to put that aside, you know, owning it, knowing, you know, it's on my shoulders and there are a lot of people relying on me. So that attachment changes everything, you know, for a marriage as a parent, um, it's, you know, being able to, you know, help them grow because they know that you're there for them and it allows, you know, to you to have a voice. It allows your child to have a voice, your spouse to have a voice. So really being for, you know, each other. So our brains and nervous systems, you know, are definitely impacted by our environment um, where we grow up and the relationships that we have with caregivers. So we are not really able to skip developmental stages physically, and we're not able to really do that emotionally and mentally either. You know, it, we have to be able to work through that. So if we didn't have what we needed when we were younger, you know, we're going to need to get it at some point or we'll continue to have some unhealthy patterns, you know, and development along the way. So it goes back to, you know, being available, being attached and having a child or a teen, whoever it is, know that they're in a safe environment so that as we go through different, you know, crisis points or traumas, however you want to look at it in life, um, we can know that we can overcome those. And as parents, we can set examples, you know, as caregivers, we can set examples for a child. Right. What do you, how, for, for maybe a parent who doesn't fully understand what attachment is, What's a simple way to explain mm-hmm. a healthy attachment? It's really about just being connected to a child. If you think of an infant, it's, you know, a parent responding over and over and over and over, you know, however many hundred million <laughs> times within infancy to changing diapers and feeding and when they're crying and that response that comes. So it's them knowing, you know, that they are safe and secure, you know, that they can trust, um, relationships around them and the environment that they're in. And those are the things that provide a foundation, you know, for them to have, um, to know that they're worthy of love, you know, to have a positive view of themselves, Mm. but then also the knowledge that they can have positive relationships with others, even though there are many who will take advantage of us in life, that there are healthy relationships and they've learned how to have that. Mm, That's so good. I love that. You know, 
telling kids that they're mm-hmm. worthy of love. What do you see as your biggest weakness or challenge growth? I call it growth <laughs> opportunity um, as a parent. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> it's definitely what I mentioned, you know, as a parent, it's spending, you know, that time with my daughter really that she needs. Um, because the practice is a ministry, it's almost like a church, you know, in my mind in some ways. And because I'm supervising and doing trainings and coaching and you have my own clients and, you know, doing all types of things. It's just that feeling of never being caught up as a parent. And then I transfer home and I'm just seeing the things at home, you know, that need to be done. So it's that, you know, that people needing you, whether it's your family, your kids, or those at work never ends. I feel like sometimes as a female, um, you know, and that's, it's really a ministry that God's given us, but at the same time, it can be hard to turn that off, you know, and to make the things important that need to be. There's a, a little handbook yeah. that we've read with church. It's called Tyranny of the Urgent. And I feel like that is, you know, mm-hmm. one of my biggest flaws is that I will, you know, focus on just what's urgent right now and sometimes not that long term of the relationship. So, rituals are what really make a relationship with your child. Those are things that you do that they can count on. It's just something you've built in. So we talked about negative religious rituals, but in a home life, they're positive, you know, if they're for a child. So when my daughter was younger, my husband really encouraged me when she was around four. So it's probably been a decade now. He was like, you really need some time with her. That is just fun time. Cause I'm not always the fun one. Uh, I'm the get it done one. <laughs> and so we started kind of mm-hmm. wrestling and snuggling is what we would do. And it mm-hmm. turned into kind of acting like animals and then pretending like the animals are dying and then we'll snuggle after. And we still, play. we did it last night, mm-hmm. you know? So now she just kind of laughs at me because I, I can't think fast enough. And so like I did an anteater and I am pretending to like sniff up the ants. And she's like, mom, ant eaters use their long tongue. They don't sniff ants. So now she just makes fun of me. Basically. <laughs> That's so, so funny. You know, it's, it's whatever's fun because we're in the middle of COVID and we can't be with friends and she is relying on us so much more. That is such an interesting, you know, thing about how much COVID has changed family life. We've been going to the park like we did when she was younger, you know, every day. So, you know, it's just having mm-hmm. those rituals in place, you know, whether it's when, of how they wake up or how you put them to bed or, you know, things you do during the day, just ways that you connect with them, meaning it's eye to eye. There are no screens, you know, you're available to them and they can talk to you. So, so just those types of things really connecting. I like that. I like it that too, because it's not, it's not the whole entire day of you pouring no. into your child. It's Cause that really feels creating, overwhelming. It's creating intensity. <laughs> Totally. It's creating intentional touch points. But I think for so many of us, we didn't have an example of what healthy mm-hmm. parenting look like. And so we know we don't want to, we don't want to do it that way, but what way mm-hmm. do we do it? And so we often think in mm-hmm. extremes. And so I think a lot of parents think I need to be there, you know, and that's where the helicopter parent or tiger parent or whatever comes in. It's like, I love that. Just that morning time, that evening time, creating those rhythms and rituals, because that's what builds trust because mm-hmm. they know that's coming. So if you're not there, if you're not available, it's not that you're never available, but you'll be available at bedtime or the following morning, whatever mm-hmm. that time may be. And that resiliency is so key in creating and building, um, helping children to develop into mm-hmm. strong people. What do you see as has been the your child's biggest struggles that you have been challenged with as a 
as a parent mm-hmm. and as a counselor. The biggest ones have definitely been within the last couple of years. It's not uncommon for a child of adoption or trauma you know, or different experiences in life to have GI issues. And so we ended up on mm-hmm. a journey of, you know, through cooks, um, just with their GI department, which I had no clue is their largest department <laughs> as far as most frequented it is. That's interesting. And so through all that, we were able, thankfully, we were blessed to get an answer, you know, at the end of that, um, along with, you know, something else that could be kind of healed with some medication. So there's one that's a chronic one. And then there's one that, you know, diagnosis that came that was able to be, we'll say fixed, you know, fairly easily. Um, so we went through that and then this year went into um, the diagnosis and the testing. I think what really, you know, we had considered it before my husband ended up with um, his second knee replacement this year. And in the middle of that, with me trying to do school, you know, and work and all those types of things, I could just tell he had been handling quite a bit. And I was like, this is more than than just us, you know, and I feel like we've got to set her up to succeed in the future And so that's how we got the diagnosis with the attention deficit and dyslexia. But really with that came an interesting, um, you know, journey of pursuing, it's basically like physical therapy for eyes. And there were only a couple of eye doctors who even provide it, you know, around us, even being in a major metroplex. And so we pursued that, just the exam, and then started doing, you know, the therapy for that, which we um, now continue at home and We'll see how that's gone, but um, ended up finding out, even though she has been with us, you know, since she was 12 days old, one eye does not track the same as the other. And so her one eye is basically Mm -hmm. like a typewriter that moves too fast. It keeps trying to get back to the left all the time. And so one eye will scan like it needs to when it's supposed to be reading and the other one keeps jutting (laughs) back and forth. So it was, you know, it was interesting to see how much we talk about in this, you know, world when we work with kids, how much the nervous system and the brain and all these things are interconnected and that healing can happen for any child, no matter what their, you know, background was. But it's the same thing, you know, even with her eye, it had been operating this way for this long, but it could be her brain could be retrained, you know, to differently, you know, our biggest things. I knew what her strengths were and had chosen to focus on those, but I wasn't sure, honestly, if we were on a college trajectory or, you know, would accomplish any of those things, um, that her IQ is actually really high, extremely high. Um, so she had a really high IQ, but lots of disabilities, you know, which then kept her in school mm-hmm. setting of academia, you know, it didn't always show. Yeah, my son has very similar, very high IQ, but mm-hmm. very low grades. And it actually came through with his map testing and the, the standardized testing where they were like, something isn't adding up here. We <laughs> yes, need to test that's him. Awesome. And so that, that's a benefit of testing. It's not always a bad thing, but it can yes. really help um, shed light into what Definitely. our kids are going through. So thank you for sharing about your daughter's struggles. And I'm glad you were able to get help for her and you know, it can be scary to take that road and to get tests done and to go to the doctor Mm -hmm. and the hospital. But, um, that's what our kids often need from us. Where can parents go for help? Because I feel like it's like this, like, okay, I see my kid, my child is, you know, their mood has changed or their eating patterns have changed, but what do I, what do I do about that? Where can parents go just to begin that conversation mm-hmm. or to be educated. Finding a play therapist, um, you know, there are registered play therapists. That's the credential RPD. 
and that's behind names when you look for counselors and finding somebody who really enjoys play therapy, that that's really a passion of theirs, I think is important. You know, you can find someone who aligns with your faith values. You know, that could be something to consider as well. Even with children, there are conversations that come up, you know, um, where based on the family's beliefs, I know, you know, they would want me to explore more in something, you know, or um, to respect, you know, beliefs to some degree. So it's just, you know, if you can find someone that aligns, that's always going to be a help. I think the most important thing is making sure that you ask questions about how that counselor will communicate with you. There are a lot of counselors that Mm -hmm. see children that don't communicate with parents at all. And so they literally see the child, you know, for their appointment time and send them out and there's no update. There's no parent meetings. There's not anything. And so that would be a key question, you know, to be asking um, and is something that I really set the practice up for. So we all follow the same kind of procedures and protocol and how we work with children initially in the conversations with parents. Yeah. I love that. And yes, I I am right there with you. I I have kind of like a Mm -hmm. tier program, if you will. If a child is like 13, you better believe I'm going to be talking with you at the end of every session. If a child is 17, I'll let you know if there's an issue. So um, that's kind of the way I do it. And uh, the youngest I typically see is 13. But with young, young kiddos, yeah, you bet the parents seem to be involved. And as a, as a parent, you have the freedom to call a counselor mm-hmm. and ask them questions and to set mm-hmm. up that um, consultation. Yes. So that's, that's yeah. super helpful. Do you have do you have resource websites that you often will send parents to like to tell them about like mental health issues or um, common disorders, things of that question. nature? Like maybe like NAMI or is there one specifically we have, for kids? Um, a lot of resources that are on our website and that parents can find as well as okay. some trainings that, you know, are free for parents to take. Um, like on Secrets of the Screen, oh, which cool. is about screen time or addressing trauma, you know, and it helps a family assess values and looks at, you know, different trauma a child may have been through. So we do, we have our referrals as well, but there's not necessarily, I wouldn't say one website. We try to use a lot of handouts within our office that we've created personally. Um, so a lot of that comes from the right. trainings that we attend and the things that we're reading and putting them we know a lot of parents will never follow through with looking at that website <laughs> or with reading that book because yeah. of the pace of life. It is. It's well, so they're busy. busy. So the more that we can help provide that information through parent meetings, that's another reason we created some of our three-tier approach. And so part of that is you could bring a child for counseling and have parent meetings just every once in a while. And you can do counseling that way. But part of when we expanded a year and a half ago, the vision was really that we now we were able to expand our staff as well. And so parents are able to come for parent guidance sessions at the same times that kids are here to work through some of the things, the skills that they need, as well as, you know, being able to look at themselves and the family unit. And then the third tier, you know, is the child coming for counseling and then parents attending parent guidance and then coming as a family for like family play therapy. So not just everyone on a couch at, with nice. five-year-old. So trying to do things, you know, in a way that makes <laughs> sense, you know, to the child and will be meaningful to everyone as well. So being able to incorporate, you know, as many as you can and parents being involved in that process is really important because they're the ones setting 
the pace at home and they're the ones setting an example. And so a child coming to counseling by themselves, you know, from a, a systems background, which just means the child comes with a family, they're not living by themselves. And so there needs to be some adjustment or some perspective or some learning for everyone, you know, for change to happen, you know, as quickly as it can, you know, as a family wants it to, or wants to allow it to. Totally. It really is that systems approach because, because you can help the child to, to learn new behaviors and, and coping skills. But if, but if you as a parent aren't making any changes, it's not that you're to blame. Um, but there's definitely, mm-hmm. it's not just one side of things that we have right. to be able to look at the whole picture. Well, where can we find sure. you? You can find us at www dot ccfam.com like cat cat frank so we've got those free parent resources on that website they're under a resources tab and then um, we've got trainings like i mentioned you know that are free for parents as well so you can find all those things there and then to follow me just in trainings that i'm doing and leading that website is the www.training.ccfam.com so same but with training in front of it Um, And that way you can see the trainings that I'm leading in the area. For the practice, we have Facebook. And for CCFAM training, we have um, a Facebook as well. So either Facebook or LinkedIn, something along those lines would be the best ways to find us. Well, definitely, like, if you are needing resources, like, go to that resource page, download, do the trainings. I've done many of Dr. Rhonda's trainings. They are so good, so thorough, sound, um, vouch for the work that you're doing, support you, recommend you, um, refer to you. I do all of those because I just really believe in the work that you do. So thank you so much for your well, thank time. Thank you for and having me with us Melissa. today. And thank you for, you know, having the podcast and launching out into something to be able to share with others, you know, and talk with others and so that they can gain information and knowledge as well. Yes. Yeah. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I just, you know what? I just took the leap well, January good 1. Good for and you. I'm just going to well, do it. So here awesome. we are. <laughs> yes. Take thank care. You. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. Make sure to visit my website where you can subscribe to the show to get those show notes. And also be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. That way you never miss a show. While you're at it, would you help me out by adding some stars to the rating and tell a friend about the show? Be sure to tune in next week where we continue the conversation all about mental health. Have a great week.